The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With not much more than three weeks to go now to the US election, there is no shortage of questions about what's going to happen, but also about what the longer term consequences might be in the aftermath of any result. If Joe Biden wins, will US politics return to what we used to think of as the norm before the rise of Donald Trump? Or has his disruption changed the system irreversibly? And what would a second Trump term mean for America and indeed for the world? These certainly are not simple questions and we certainly don't propose to try answering them in full today. But I would like to have a go at looking at them from the perspective of my guest. Stephen Levitsky is Professor of Government at Harvard University and he's co-author with Daniel Ziblatt of How Democracies Die, one of the most influential studies of how democracies can gradually be eroded or wither from within as opposed to succumbing to outside forces. Stephen, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. There is a huge amount in your book which is relevant to the current situation, but with your permission, I, I would like to focus on one idea which seems particularly pertinent to the election. If you cut through all the sound and the fury and frankly some of the nonsense there, there is a real question of what American government and institutions are going to look like in the future, no matter who wins. And I do find it very striking how the Biden campaign is flatly refusing to answer any questions about things like packing the Supreme Court with additional judges should they win. And there's also strong pressure for women within the Democratic Party to dispense with the filibuster, which is a sort of a supermajority requirement for most votes in the Senate. And also the whole idea of granting statehood to Washington, D.C. and to Puerto Rico to change the balance of the Senate. You write in your book about the importance of the idea of what you call forbearance in American government. And maybe you could explain what forbearance is and whether the proposals we've mentioned there fit into it. Well, forbearance is a uh, a deliberate non-use of a legal prerogative that is available to you. It is a, an act of deliberate self-restraint in the deployment of, of political power. We don't um, we don't often think about that in politics, but it is it's absolutely crucial. Uh, maybe the the best way to think about it is to to think about its opposite, which is what we call constitutional hardball. Constitutional hardball is simply using the letter of the law in ways that deliberately subvert the spirit of the law. And court packing is an example of that. The, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the court has to have nine members. It's just been uh, a standard for for uh, for more than a century now, and um, there's a there's a knowledge, a belief that to use one's majority in Congress to expand the number of of court members and fill with allies would be a, a violation of, of of established norms. Again, it would not break the rules; it would not be illegal, but it would violate established norms. But the fact that nobody has packed the court. Um, and nobody's even tried to pack the court since the 1930s, is uh, is an act of restraint on the part of, of politicians. And what's happening now is that in the context of extreme polarization, in which the parties have come to see one another, not so much as rivals, but as uh, borderline enemies or as an existential threat, 
there's a temptation on both sides, although I think it's been asymmetric, it's stronger on the Republican side, to use all the tools available in order to beat the other side. Um, and that me- that means in- it abandoning restraint. Like if you use forbearance, you are leaving options on the table. You're, you're, you're deliberately not using tools that you could use to beat the other side. And in the context of extreme polarization, like we're suffering today in the United States, politicians can't afford to do that. They, they, they can't afford to leave options on the table. And that's what we've been seeing in the last couple of decades. And that is the pressure that Biden is under right now with respect to court packing. His own party sees that a, a Supreme Court seat was stolen from it in 2016. There was another sort of naked, hypocritical violation of norms and pushing through Amy Cohen, Coney Bennett, if that happens. And there's extreme pressure on the part of Biden's own party to fight back, to push back and to, to rebalance the court. And we might look at what that means in a moment. But just to come back, I mean, you mentioned norms a couple of times here. And norms, we've heard an awful lot about norms, usually in terms of them being broken over the last uh, t- the last three and a half years or so. Is the American system particularly reliant on norms, like more so than than other democracies? Well, most most systems are reliant on some norms, but the U.S. system and 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 many of the the systems that are that are, are born of of the English model, sort of Anglo parliamentary model, are reliant on very minimalist constitutions. Other continental Europe, South America democracies have very very elaborate constitutions with very very elaborate sets of rules that 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 govern how politicians behave. The United States, the U.S. Constitution is a very short, very simple document um, that leaves a lot open. It leaves a lot um, open to interpretation, and it leaves a lot open to um, political restraint. And so I think we are probably a bit more reliant on norms than, say, the Germans or the French or the, uh, the Brazilians, who have much more elaborate constitutions. I suppose those people in the Democratic Party who are pushing I mean, should Amy Coney Barrett um, succeed in, in being appointed to the Supreme Court by Donald Trump? They're pushing for court packing as a response to the previous breaking of norms anyway. And you can see there's a huge, you know, groundswell of, of, of opposition to, to what is seen on the Democratic side as minoritarian government. You have a Senate which, because of the, the demographics of the United States and because of the polarization of the parties you talked about, seems to have almost always an inbuilt Republican majority, except in exceptional circumstances. You have Jerry gerrymandering in the in the House of Representatives, where uh, I was just looking at statistics, the Democrats need to get a majority of seven or eight percent of the popular vote to be guaranteed of a majority there. And then you have a president who's appointing a number of people to lifetime appointments in the Supreme Court. The whole system, uh, to use the words of Donald Trump, seems rigged. Well, it is. It's it's but it's rigged by accident. I mean, very quickly, the U.S. system from its beginning, by design, is is heavily biased towards underpopulated states. Um, the the difference between sparsely populated states and heavily populated states was not that great in the 18th century. So it was it was a reasonable thing to do. But the difference grew. The difference between Wyoming and California now is is vast, and it's something that would have been unimaginable and I think unpalatable to the founders back in the in the 18th century. Even so, the bias, the heavy bias in the in the Senate, in the Electoral College. And because the Senate approves the Supreme Court nominees, the Supreme Court is also biased towards sparsely populated territories. For 200 years, that didn't matter very much because the because both parties had an urban wing 
and a rural wing. So neither party was disadvantaged by this bias towards sparsely populated territories. Only in the last 20 years or so, the Republicans have become overwhelmingly a rural party and the Democrats have become overwhelmingly an urban party. So that means, as you pointed out, that our institutions are heavily biased towards the party based in the spark in, in rural areas. The Democrats have to win the popular vote for the Senate. This is a calculation of Nate Silver by almost 7% in order to assure themselves a majority in, in the Senate. Um, wi- Democrats winning an election by five points isn't enough. It's the same thing with the Electoral College. They, Nate Silver calculates that if Biden wins by three points this year, which is a, you know, a, a small but solid victory, he's very likely, very likely to lose the election. He needs to win by five or six points to assure himself victory in the election. So this is this was not um, malicious intent by the, by the Republicans. This is a combination of constitutional design and demographic change that has produced this uh, this distortion. But what it means is the system is strikingly undemocratic. Right. We are we are very, very susceptible to minority rule, which is, I think, going to necessitate some kind of institutional reform. So what do you make then of proposals, for example, expanding the number of of states is one of the proposals, including Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as states? Well, I I think it's very unlikely that we'll get that we'll undertake a constitutional change to um, uh, to change the way that we elect senators or change the the composition of the the Senate. So um, the addition of states may be the least bad alternative. I mean, there is a there is a this is not at least not necessarily constitutional hardball to grant full citizenship to Puerto Ricans and, and residents of D.C. These are Americans who lack the right to vote uh, for president, which is a, a pretty big deal. So it's, a, it's arguably a pretty democratizing step. Now, the, it, it's, it's a step that benefits the Democratic Party without question, um, but it would have the effect of um, adding some balance to the Senate. Um, so, and, and, and getting us a, at least a, a couple of steps closer to majority rule. We have an electoral majority in opposition that um, institutions are preventing from governing. And that, that's a real threat to the legitimacy of our democratic system. And does that extend then to the Supreme Court, given that the incredible you know, power the Supreme Court wields in the United States, the fact that it's a system of direct appointment by the president, you know, other other countries have different systems of uh, of, of appointing senior judges. Um, and then this really rather strange provision that they remain there until they either choose to leave or they're taken out in a box. Um, are there are there amendments or improvements that can be made in that system short of packing the court or or could increasing the court be part of a, a broader range of reforms of it? It might. I'm, I'm pretty concerned about the um, the move to pack the court. I think that it's likely to lead to sort of rapid escalation and uh, and, a, and a further politicization of the Supreme Court. I don't quite see how it ends well if the Democrats pack the court. That said, um, the norm of restraint around the appointment of of Supreme Court justices is is dead. It's broken. Uh, it was badly wounded in 2016, and it was destroyed last month by by McConnell. I don't think there's any going back to that norm. There's no need for Joe Biden, or there, it would be ridiculous for Joe Biden to defend that norm at this point. 
when norms get broken, what what is what's needed usually is a formal rule change, a change in the formal rules. Just to give one example, the U.S. for almost 150 years had no formal term limits in the presidency. One could be president for life. Uh, one could be reelected uh, an unlimited number of times. We had a norm that that kept presidents to two terms for 150 years. It began with George Washington, continued through the 1940s. FDR broke that norm, stayed four terms. The, the norm was busted. There was no going back after that. So they changed the constitution and they prohibited a third term. We're going to have to do something like that with the Supreme Court, whether it is um, term limits in the court uh, or rotation, which, which is dubiously constitutional. So, or maybe some kind of rotation in and off of the court, but some kind of a formal rule change is going to have to replace this norm of, of, of forbearance because we can't rely on that norm anymore. I, I talked to a senator last year who told me that um, he's quite, con- this is a very moderate senator. Uh, he's quite convinced that the, what happened with Merrick Garland in 2016, in which the, the president lacked a majority in the Senate and therefore could not get anything through that that is going to be the norm going forward, that never again, the way things stand, will a president without a majority in the Senate be able to nominate someone to the Supreme Court. They will always be blocked. So the norm is broken. And does the polarization of the parties, which you write about at some length, mean that the prospect of any kind of an agreement on a constitutional amendment, because that obviously requires some form of quite broad cross-party consensus to have any chance of getting through, that that's just not going to be on the table at all? It makes it extremely unlikely. Um, you know, we have a real problem with the Electoral College, right? We have um, the, the Republicans since 2000 have won the popular vote one time in the last 20 years, and yet they've governed 12 of the last 20 years. Um, that's a real, it's a real problem when when the, the, the person who loses the popular vote semi-regularly becomes the president of the United States. Um, but you're right. It's I think in the context of polarization, it's almost it's almost unthinkable that we would undertake a constitutional reform. That's why I think some some reforms that are sh- that short of constitutional reform are essential. For example, the filibuster, um, the norm around the filibuster has been broken for 40 years. Uh, the filibuster used to be used on an average of less than one time a year. It was something that you you break the glass and you use once in a while. It's become something that's used. Um, in every piece of legislation. So in effect, one needs 60 votes to get any law through Congress at any time. That was not originally the, the, the intent of the rule, and that wasn't originally the norm. The norm is broken, and I think the filibuster needs to be eliminated so we have some semblance of majority rule in the Senate. There's no, there's no democracy in the world with a filibuster. Well, I was going to say exactly that, where, you know, we live in a parliamentary democracy here and it would seem bizarre to have a supermajority on kind of regular votes on, you know, spending and legislation of various sorts. I, I don't even understand, you know, wh- where it originated in the first place and why it's lasted so long. It was the fact that we that the parties were internally heterogeneous. They overlapped ideologically and programmatically. And it was very easy to build cross path. Uh, first of all, to, to build coalitions in the legislature across parties. And because the parties were not very polarized for most of the 20th century, the stakes of legislation were just not that high. Nowadays, what uh, the, the stakes in every single bill seem to be very, very high. And it's, it's politically, parties are so polarized that it's politically impossible for a senator of one party to sit down and negotiate a bill with a senator from another party. Just, it just doesn't happen. 
I mean, one of the things about the, I think, the vision of the the founding fathers was that they didn't like the idea of political parties very much and they hoped that political parties wouldn't emerge. But of course, political parties did emerge um, pretty quickly. But the political parties that emerged in the United States, I think partly because of the the overall structures, were, as you say, quite heterogeneous for most of the history of the the country. They were very broad coalitions, you know, southern... um, um, southern racist Democrats, uh, along with northern industrial base for other part of the party, you know, quite liberal Republicans who might be much more liberal than some some conservative Democrats, all that kind of thing, which meant that parties were not as locked to identity as they are in most parts of the world, including here. You didn't have a clear left and a clear right. But once that has emerged, which it has now, I think it's it's fair to say, the system really just does not work to accommodate that, does it? Two large, diametrically opposed parties. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Our system was designed, you're right, that it was designed for no parties. And it worked reasonably well while you had heterogeneous, pragmatic, not disciplined parties. Our system is not, it cannot function with two highly polarized and disciplined parties. It, it's impossible to make divided government work when the parties cannot negotiate. And um, so we... it. The, our polarization and party discipline of the 21st century is much better suited for a parliamentary system than a, a Madisonian presidential system. And so I think pro- the, the, the steps that we need to take, for example, eliminating the filibuster would inch us closer to sort of majoritarian parliamentary democracy. Now, Joe Biden, in the way he presents himself and the words he uses and the way he talks about his experience as a very long-standing, you know, senator and senior politician himself, seems to me to be, in some ways, the epitome of the forbearance that you talk about. Uh, he, you know, he, he talks about compromise. He talks about working for all Americans. He talks about, you know, he he shies away from quite clearly from some of the more uh, left-wing elements of the of the Democratic Party. There's a, looking at him, I have a suspicion um, that he would be open to some of these moves, if, if, if for no other reason than if the likelihood is that even if he does win, and even if the Democrats do capture the Senate, and that's more or less a, a, a toss-up right now, he'll probably have lost control of the Senate in two years' time. And with a highly conservative Supreme Court facing him, um, he has a very short period of time, and the party has to make a real change before they fall back into that sort of frozen situation which Barack Obama um, faced for most of his presidency. I think that's quite right. And I think Biden knows, um, I mean, Biden knows that the electorate wants to hear a politician saying that we should all get along and we should go back to an era in which we compromise and sit down. The, the Most of the electorate, particularly independent voters, like that kind of discourse. They don't they don't respond well to a polarizing discourse. So what Biden, Biden being Biden sells electorally. That said, Biden has gotten where he's gotten in politics by always keeping himself at the center of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is moving is moving left. And he knows that. The the platform is uh in 2020 is more left wing than anything we've seen since the since the FDR era. And um, and he knows very well that the Democrats are going to have to play more hardball than than they have in the past. Um, he's just he's just not saying it in the campaign. Is there not some possibility even if, for centrist Democrats like Biden? If you look at the Republican Party right now, and if you took to the position which which I think a lot of Democrats would that the Republican Party has gone terribly wrong and gone down a road it shouldn't have gone to, and in some ways it has perhaps been incentivized by some of the 
political and electoral structures which you described there to move to to more extreme positions. That some of the reforms, such as you know broadening the number of senators, getting rid of gerrymandering, would mean that that the Republican Party would have to have a reset and a rethink, would have to move further back towards the centre, which centrist Democrats might welcome. That is my hope. I mean, there there are several steps to get there, but I think if we were able to create a slightly more majoritarian democracy or or weaken some of the counter majoritarian elements of our democracy, where the where the Republicans are able. I mean, right now, the Republicans are able to win and and maintain and exercise power without winning a national majority. They're able, they they don't need to adapt because with 45% of the electorate, they can hold the Senate, they can control the Supreme Court, they have a shot at the House of Representatives, and once in a while, they can win the presidency via the Electoral College. Um, And and that allows them to sort of hunker down in their white Christian bunker and remain a, a, a quite radical party. Um, what opening up the Senate, you know, ideal, at least in theory, eliminating the electoral college, that's not going to happen, but creating a more majoritarian democracy that forces the Republicans to win national majorities if they want to govern will exactly, as you say, I think, create a much stronger incentive for them to broaden their base, broaden their coalition, become something more than a white Christian party, which would have the effect, the very healthy effect, I think, of depolarizing our politics. The the all the ultimate what's ultimately fueling polarization in this country is that we have a a white Christian majority in decline that is represented uh, that that sees the, the 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 emergence of a more diverse society and and less hierarchical society as an existential threat and is represented by the Republican Party. Once the Republicans cease to be the party of white Christians, our politics, I think, are very likely to depolarize. Finally, I, I think I have to ask you, I mean, Biden is the front runner by quite comfortable margins, according to the polls at the moment. But what if Trump wins? And given that, as you say, if he does win, it'll almost certainly be again with a minority of the popular vote. What happens? Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult, difficult to anticipate. Uh, a couple of things. I mean, I, I think I don't expect that he would sort of consolidate some sort of autocracy along the lines of, of Hungary or Turkey or or. or Russia, Venezuela, he simply won't have the power to do it. I mean, he's not going to win the uh, House of Representatives. He may well not win the Senate. Um, And if he wins, as you said, it will certainly be via the Electoral College, not the popular vote, which means that he will be incredibly, incredibly illegitimate in the eyes of a majority of Americans from day one, even more so than in 2016. So I think you would see probably a continuation of large scale protest. Um, and a fair amount of instability and dysfunction. I think we we would almost certainly slide into crisis, but I don't think the distribution of power is such that he could consolidate some sort of autocracy. I think he could behave in a very abusive way. I mean, we've seen him in over four years really begin to sort of hack away at our civil service, hack away at some of our um, most effective independent state agencies and begin to politicize and even corrupt them, right? Use them for personal, political, and in some cases, undemocratic ends. That would continue. But um, I think you would see a, a country that is crisis-written and and dysfunctional rather than openly authoritarian. Stephen, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. It's a pleasure.
and How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt is published by Penguin. Before we go, another reminder of our current excellent offer for new subscribers to the Irish Times. If you go to irishtimes.com inside and sign up for a premium, a weekend or a complete package, you will get a complimentary pair of Sennheiser wireless headphones for enhanced enjoyment of this very podcast, among other things. And if you use that address, irishtimes.com slash inside, they will know we sent you there, which helps us in our efforts to keep making this podcast a little bit better. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. And as always, you can get in touch with us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We do like to hear from you. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>